Welcome to Garden Views, interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views and this week we're going to go back to space or talking about space anyway and the law of space and we're very fortunate this week to have Michelle L.D. Hanlon professor of law, and she's the co-director of the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law and its Center for Air and Space Law. She's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Space Law, which is the world's oldest law journal dedicated to legal problems arising out of human activities in outer space, and its sister publication, the Journal of Drone Law and Policy, and I am very much interested in that. Um, Professor Hanlon is the co-founder and president of For All Moonkind Incorporated, a nonprofit corporation that is the only organization that is in the world focused on protecting human cultural heritage in outer space. In this capacity, she was instrumental in the development of the recently enacted One Small Step Act in the United States. For All Moonkind has been recognized by the United Nations as a permanent observer to to the United Nations Committee on the peaceful uses of outer space and recently launched its Institute on Space Law and Ethics. She received her BA in political science from Yale, you've heard of that one, I'm sure, and her JD magna cum laude from Georgetown University Law Center, earned her LLM in air and space law from McGill University. So thank you for for coming on the show and welcome, and thank you for providing me with all that information. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Now, I'm, I'm really pleased to do so. So as I understand it, that University of Mississippi is one of three law schools that has a certified space law program. Am I correct in that? So we're one of four sort of air and space law centers in the world, um, McGill in Canada and Leiden in the Netherlands. Um, but we're only one of, we're one of two in the United States that are at ABA accredited law schools or law schools at all. So the other one is the University of Nebraska. Oh yeah, that one I know about. I'm work. I think Case Western is working on it. There are, we are seeing it's really exciting because we're seeing more and more schools starting to teach space law as part of their regular curriculum. Um, for example, Harvard Law just started teaching space law last fall, um, and Georgetown teaches a course on space law. And what we have at Mississippi is we're the only, we are the only program in the world that has um, six very distinct, different classes on space law. Love it. So we really get down down in the trenches. Well, I definitely want to talk about the trenches. And I talked to one of the two professors from the Washington, D.C. area, Professor uh, uh, Coplo and also Professor Hertzfeld. Uh, I'm sure you probably know of at least one, if not both of them. Um but uh, we talked about space law, obviously, and the Hooke's theory, and I'm a Hooke's theory skeptic, uh, but all the professors tell me I'm be- being silly. And the, the reason I ma- mentioned the prior professors is that the day after uh, Henry Hertzfeld told me I was being a little bit silly and the Hooke's theory will hold and no country really wants to act without predictability, the Kingdom of South uh, of, of Saudi Arabia, not South, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia um, exited from uh, one of the treaties on the, I think, the Moon Treaty. Um, and as far as I know, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia does not at this point have a space program. Um, so yeah, that, that was uh, that, that was sort of an ominous um, omen, I guess, or, or a sign. Um, so 
I guess we should start talking about current events. And I, I know that the, you know there's been a bunch of launchings. There was a, a mostly 3D printed uh, uh, test from SpaceX that they say was a success. Some people said because it blew up, it wasn't. But that's not really what they were testing, I suppose. Um, and just you know, the Artemis is coming up. So lead me where I need to go and, and I guess start wherever you think it's best to start about on sort of current events. There's a lot going on. There is, and it's really exciting. And what's what's really amazing is that this pace is not going to abate. It's just going to get faster and faster and faster. We're going to see more and more launches, more and more launches to the moon. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I like that you sort of kick it off with Saudi Arabia's decision to leave the moon agreement. Because I think that's very much part and parcel of where we're headed. Um, they, Saudi Arabia does not have a space program yet, but they have purchased, I believe, seats on an Axiom flight for some Saudi Arabian um, astronauts uh, to go on a private flight. But what it's really showing is that more and more countries, even if they don't have space programs yet, are realizing space is the future. There are resources that we um, are going to use in space. We are going to need to explore space. And so it's silly to not get involved, especially if you're a country like Saudi Arabia, which has a tremendous amount of money. Um, and so it was it was interesting to see. I know a lot of professors, um, academics sort of uh, really felt it painfully when Saudi Arabia uh, left the, or uh, announced it was going to leave the moon agreement. But um, Jeff, between you and me, the moon agreement's dead. It, it, nobody, it's, it's not, why, why do we keep trying to resuscitate it? It has some good ideas in it. Let's just take them out and move on. Uh, but then, you know, you're right. Then we had uh, Relativity Space, the very first 3D printed rocket. We had SpaceX in a fantastic, fabulous, uh, what do they call it? A, um, unplanned or un, un, uh, disassembly. Um, yes, unplanned disassembly. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Engineers, I gotta, gotta love them. Yes, a very interesting um, way of saying it blew up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then iSpace, which was the um, second uh, sort of commercial, not not entirely governmental mission to try and reach the moon. Um, and of course, um, iSpace, we lost communication with iSpace at the very last minute. Now that one really was a heart, heart wrenching for me um, because they, you know, they took the step of, of putting everything up on YouTube. They were sharing this incredible moment with the world, and um, I, you know, I was really felt for them. But it's, I hate to say it, but it's true. Space is hard. Right. Um, you know, we had no business having humans on the moon back in the 19, 1969. That was crazy that we did that. There's a reason we haven't been back um, in 50 plus years. But but now it's really time to, to get back in the trenches um, and figure out how to do this. All right. So a lot to unpack there, but I, I don't think I can just leave it at the moon treaty is dead. Let's face it and move on. So what, what do you mean by that? So um, there are... Basically, we call it five UN treaties that cover space activities. And those are the only things, the only laws that really are binding with respect to what we do in space. Uh, the Outer Space Treaty, which is the Magna Carta of space uh, law, really the foundational guidelines and principles, a liability convention, a registration convention, and a return and rescue agreement. And they all are exactly what they sound like. So after the after those treaties were negotiated, um, the the People looked back at the Outer Space Treaty and realized, oh, it doesn't really classify space as a global commons. It calls space the province of all humankind. Um, and it doesn't really talk about the resources of space. So 
um, why don't we witness the same time that we were negotiating the Convention of the Law of the Sea, um, another area where no nobody's supposed to claim territory. Uh, so they said, let's let's um, look back at this again and let's fill in some of the details from the Outer Space Treaty that left open. Um, and the the concept in the Moon Agreement that sort of scares people away is that calls uh, space the common heritage of humankind. Um, now, okay, between you and me, province of all humankind, common heritage of humankind, I, they mean different things. That's all a lawyer can tell you. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have definitions for either one, but they mean different things. And somehow that, that concept of common heritage carries with it more of a sort of um, common good, more benefit sharing than province of all humankind does. I would hope so, because it's very flowery language, but let's just play devil's advocate for a second. And there's other life in this star system or really anywhere, really, that can see the sun and the moon. I mean, you know, it, I'm sure it's unintentional, but it's, it, it's almost unintentionally colonialistic. Saying, this is ours. It's our common heritage. I mean, and, and, and one, of the, one of the things that brought me to doing this continuing series was that I was very curious about it. And I'm a bit of a cynic, um, as you may have figured out already. Um, and I just figured that, well, I already know what the end is going to be. It's, it's, you know, international law, you know, only sort of exists here on the earth. And, you know, it's going to be basically the British East India Company. And I was, you know, wondering, like, you know, what, let's just pretend it's Tesla who gets there first. Um, you know, the, he, he gets his rockets up there and becomes some sort of, you know, public-private, you know, partnership. And, you know, you give them, you give, he gets whatever, three platoons of whatever the Air Force's equivalent is of uh, special forces, you know, just, just to keep his stuff secure, you know, in case China goes up there or, you know, and I'm not even going to say China, I'm going to use my usual straw man, bad actor country, Jeff Zikistan. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a, it's a very bad country and has unlimited resources and, and has no moral center except to waive liability for anybody who gives its money. Um, so it's just a coincidence thing, Jeff. I don't know why. Um, so, you know, uh, he, he, what's to stop him from going up there and, and saying, yeah, Mars is mine now. It's now, it's now no longer Mars. It's planet Musk. Um, you know, uh, you guys in the Air Force, I'm going to 10 times pay your salaries. I'm going to take you and each of your families is going to get $5 million right now. And everyone's going to be all good. And they're like, Aye, aye, sir, you know, or whatever, I guess that's sailors, but, you know, what is, what's, what's to stop that? And everyone else has told me, well, that's the hook theory. And that's because, you know, Elon Musk or whomever has more business here on earth, whatever he's doing up there, there's more business from Tesla and maybe Twitter and whatever his other projects might be. And my response to that is, well, until you find the $40 trillion asteroid that, that you can get to first, and then that, and then that changes the math. So am I, aside from the fact that technology isn't there yet to harvest those things and get them anywhere useful uh, at the present time, at least as far as I know, um, where am I wrong or am I wrong? You're not wrong. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Mars, Elon Musk gets to Mars first and he wants to make it you know, Teslaville or whatever, there's nothing that can stop him. I agree. But, and, and it's not so much, you know, the, the hook is, it's just, it's going to be a long time before Mars can exist without help from Earth, a right. colony, or a, a community, I'm not going to use the word colony, 
a community on Mars is not going to be able to exist on Mars without help from Earth. Sure. So he's either got to create a supply chain where he can ignore the rest of the uh, commu- international community, or he's got to be, or he's got to play nice. And then even even when you think about getting, a, I don't think finding an asteroid with a tremendous amount of resources is necessarily going to help because what, what's your market at that point? You know, if you bring that asteroid back to Earth, you're killing the market because you're all of a sudden filling it with this rare Earth stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really, to me, it's it's going to take a long time. I think it's going to happen. It has to happen. I mean, we're humans. Um but it, it, that sort of break from sovereignty is just going to happen over time when you start getting communities that don't need stuff from Earth in order to survive. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So let's get back to the pleasant stuff. Uh, and, we'll, and so Artemis is a planned man, manned human uh, voyage to the moon where people are going to put boots on ground and you know from there i I guess there's talk of you know maybe building a a spaceport or a a launching pad or something my friend matt williams who's a space journalist said that with 3d printers you can actually use the materials on the moon to construct pods and things like that and i know that there's these old i guess they're lava tunnels or whatever that, that they actually get to about 40 degrees fahrenheit you know during during the day and at night, maybe a little bit colder, maybe, but maybe not, because it's pretty much the same on the moon all the time. It's always facing Earth. I mean, the sun, well, one side's facing Earth, one for, <laughs> right? Yeah, but depending on the year, it can be 40 or 50 degrees Fahrenheit there. And you can probably, you know, when it gets where it's colder, you could store food. And where it's room temperature, you could store water and people, you know, <laughs> if you could find, if you can seal it off with, with air and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I know this is all none of these things happen quickly, um, but like how much is Artemis going to do, or is it just to show that we can put people on the moon again and then they're going to, you know, they're going to pick up some rocks, do some tests, and three days later climb back in the in the launcher and uh, not the launcher into the craft and make their way back? So, the, the premise of the Artemis uh, program is to use the moon to get to Mars and beyond. So we are going to have a community on on the moon. I don't think it's going to be a very big one. I don't think uh, people on Earth necessarily want to look up and see like high-rise buildings jutting off the moon or anything like that. But we do need to use the moon for two things: one, to learn how to live in space in lower gravity, um, what it's going to what's it like to like not be on Earth, things like that. So just from a sociological standpoint, to put people um, on in communities on the moon so that that we get a better understanding, get used to like right now. People don't even think about the fact that there are astronauts on the space station, right? Um, and that's the way it should be about the moon. It's just like, oh, of course, there's going to be people there. Um, but we're also using the moon to test all these things. You talked about 3D printing um, and using um, lunar material to create habitats. Um, one of the most important things, as we've learned from the SpaceX launch of uh, Star, Star, the Starship, is we need landing pads on the moon. Um, you know, and so maybe that's one of the first things we use the regolith and center it and create landing pads and roads. But really, the the moon is, um, is our closest neighbor, our most loyal neighbor, um, and it's going to help us get beyond our orbit and into deeper space, so that we can get to Mars and to all those other asteroids, and hopefully, you know, again, hundreds of years from now, onto other planets that might be able to bear life, human life. 
when I first encountered you, it was on LinkedIn and you were giving a talk on space mining. And so I, I would love to hear more about that um, because, you know, you know, harvesting of resources, I mean, whether one likes it or not, that that's probably the motivation for going to space to either assist with scare, resource scarcity down here on Earth or to figure out ways to colonize other places to, I mean, it would take a long, long time to relieve the pressure of, of the population on Earth, et cetera, et cetera. But usually things like this, discovery spawns uh, innovation and spawns other economies and job growth and, you know, betterment, uh, you know, and, you know, even the British East India Company, after all was said and done, you know, the, the world was richer afterwards, but they did some you know, horrible, horrible things in the interim. And hopefully we can avoid the the horrible, horrible part of it and, and just try to find a way to make a more quote unquote civilized uh, approach to it. And we can actually treat the rest of the world sort of like Antarctica, where we sort of share it in this precarious piece. Um, the Probably the best hope for it is that it's space is really difficult to survive in. Um, so, you know, probably everybody, it probably will take a village, village being the human race. Um, but for space mining, what's it going to take? Like, how, how are you going to get drillers and equipment and, you know, uh, supply chains, including, you know, transit, cargo, back and forth um, from that? Is AI involved? I mean, I, I, I don't even know where to be, where to begin with it. So, um you know, if we had Harlan Ellison or one of the great sci-fi writers who, you know, foresaw this, Arthur C. Clarke or someone, they, they could probably do it. But from a legal perspective, what what do you see happening and how do you see, I guess, claims or, you know, mines or if you, how, how do you see that being divvied up or assigned or is it all international? I mean, how's, how's this going to work? How can it possibly work? So baby steps, and unfortunately, as we know, um, when babies first learn how to step, they fall down an awful lot, and, and that's what's going to happen. You know, I, I laugh whenever it was, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson said, you know, the first trillionaire is going to be an asteroid miner, resource miner. You know, I, the, the idea that you're going to make a billion dollars mining an asteroid is so far-fetched. Yeah, I, I think it's going to happen. But not in my generation and probably not the next generation. I and mean, we haven't even figured out how to get back to the moon yet. Mm-hmm. How are we going to even think about, you know, uh, re- resource mining? And then think about the moon. The moon is our closest neighbor. That's where we're going to test all of our abilities and technologies. But what does the moon have? Okay, it has water, which we need to protect the humans that we send there. And that we can eventually use, separate into hydrogen and oxygen and use as fuel, Right. Right. Um, and then everyone says, well, it has rare earth metals, but it, it's small little pockets. And you're not going to, the cost of getting something back from the moon is ridiculous. I mean, it's just going to, it's going to cost more from coming from the moon than coming from earth. And then there's helium three. Woohoo. This is our, you know, our wonder energy. Um, that's great, but we don't know how to get to it. We don't know how to use it. Um, so oh. there's so much, <laughs> I mean, we have no idea, but it's all there, you know. No, I was told well, helium three, and that's going to solve all the energy. But I, I, you know, since I don't know too many physicists or didn't ask the questions, I, I, I didn't know they didn't know how to use it or yeah. what to do with it. That, that that seems like a pretty important detail. It's sort of like saying, "Hey, we can we can power the sun." The problem was we can't bring the sun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so what what I think people have to remember, and and it's it always it 
calls me when people talk about, you know, they, these billionaires should be spending their money on feeding the poor. I mean, and that's what they're doing. Nope, nobody right now is making money in space, um, you know, unless the, the only companies that are have um, contracts with the government, you right. know. And so the people who are spending their own money to explore space, to figure this out, are doing it for other reasons, maybe for very selfish reasons. I don't care, but they're not doing it because they think they're going to get rich um, because it is, gonna, you know, we've got to get to them. And now you asked a really good question. Um, we have in the Outer Space Treaty this concept that um, a state party to the treaty may not claim territory on the moon or any other celestial body um, or cannot appropriate by uh, claim of territory, by claim of sovereignty or by any other means. So what on earth does that mean? Well, that's something we got to figure out. Um, we have this concept of space being open and free, accessible to all. And so literally that could mean that if you build a facility and, uh, on the moon and you start mining that water to power your next rocket, um, Jeff, 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 Jeff Sikistan, yes. Could just come in and say, hey, freedom of access, awesome. Hey, can I <laughs> pop a beer? Yeah. You know, and and that's, we don't know. I mean, we, we have not figured that out yet. And, and, you know, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space has set up a working group. Um, we have the Artemis Accords, which says, look, you can, um, if you extract the resources, that's not claiming property, so you can take them. Um, and we have some precedent for that because China, the US, Japan, and Russia have all taken stuff from space and brought it back and said that they're mine, they're ours. So it's really, um, and then we have the Artemis Accords taking it one step further and saying, oh, what if we had safety zones? You know, let's talk about what that would look like. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's been this big kerfuffle. Russia said we were being imperialist, and China said the Artemis Accords are wrong. But China didn't say the Artemis Accords are wrong in substance. They said they're wrong because they didn't they weren't negotiated through the United Nations process. The fact of the matter is, China is going to want to use resources as well. Sure. Um, and so, I mean, it's just common sense. China is going to want safety zones as well. So, you know, the we've got to get to that. Really, what I would love to see is these two programs, neck and neck, both of us get to the moon at the same time, and we start creating custom because they're gonna they're gonna need to stay out of each other's way, um, and and at some point they're gonna need each other as well. Uh, so it's it, the the idea that we can create the laws now is kind of ridiculous because we don't really know what it's going to be like. Um, well, we have to have some framework or at least some place where, pe where people, states, I really mean, agree to hear disputes and it, it may have to bind private parties, you know, within any state that's in the UN or whatever, whether it's the Hague or, or, or some new court, maybe in Jeffzikistan, who knows? Uh, we can be the harbinger of space justice. Maybe uh, uh, some guy named Jeff, totally different Jeff probably, will be the the, the head space magistrate. Maybe I'll uh, have space marshals, who knows? Um, but I don't know. I feel like you need to sort of, even though it, it seems early, I feel like if you build the foundations of a system, just like a small business, if you build the foundations first, you're more poised for success. I, 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 I'm afraid that everything's going to be 
catch up afterwards after, you know, sort of after horses have left the stable and some of the damage is already going to be done. And is that inevitable? I mean, I'm a cynic, but even then I'm saying, no, it's not, not, it's not yet. We're, 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 we're there now. Um, and if I can figure that out, hopefully smarter people can figure it out too. And, and if in fact you're correct that, you know, actors, including China and Russia, you know, India, the U.S. that are, you know, actively in space and have the resources to, I don't know about Russia anymore, to actually put things in space and maintain them and have return missions. Um, you know, other partners who have money, like the Gulf states, as, as we were talking about Saudi Arabia earlier, I know that UAE has a a space program um, of sorts. Um, you know, they, you know, there there seems like there could be some bridge building right now. And maybe we would have some you know, unintended or maybe intended side effects on things that are going on right here. Maybe if uh, there was a way to find, I don't know, cobalt or something, an asteroid, maybe, you know, maybe China doesn't need 2 million, you know, s- slaves in, you know, Western China that nobody wants to talk about. Um, you know, stuff like that. Who knows? Maybe maybe the Democratic Republic of the Congo doesn't, you know, need to have a civil war because everyone wants to, you know, hold the, the mountain of cobalt. You know, I... You know, uh, it's probably a bit Pollyannish and nothing's that simple, but, you know, you like you said, baby steps. Exactly. And, and I think we have to be Pollyannish about it. And I think that's something that space does to people. Um, you know, the Frank White overview effect idea of, of looking back on Earth and realizing um, that we're all in this together. And, the, you know, the one good thing, well, there's a lot of good things about these increased launch capacities and so forth, but more and more humans are going to go to space and hopefully feel that overview. And I, I truly, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of astronauts and, and they do, they tell me, yeah. I mean, I don't know that they physiologically change their brains, but yeah, you, you do look back and feel kind of foolish that people are fighting. Um, and so the more, the more people that we can get to come back and share that with us, then the more we can hopefully uh, better ourselves. How do you think that, um, I, I don't think I ever really let you a- answer my initial question, which I probably should have just left as a one sentence question, but how, how do you think, you know, uh, resource sightings or resource sites, harvesting places uh, can be delineated at all? I mean, also through a UN, some, some committee, some council, um, whoever gets there first, what, what, what do you think would be the best way to do it? Or maybe not, how about the best and, What's the most realistic? So, I mean, I, the United Nations is not a uh, has not done a fantastic job of, of building its own reputation. I think the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space is one of the best committees within the United Nations. Otherwise, we're seeing a lot of corruption um, and issues. A lot of people will point to the Convention of the Law of the Sea and the International Seabed Authority and say, "Look, that didn't work at all." Uh, so. I would like to see a bottom-up approach, not a top-down approach. I would like to see um, commercial entities step up and uh, reach agreements among themselves. So if we get uh, commercial entities to sort of implement the kinds of rules and regulations they want, if commercial entities can show that they can be responsible space actors, then the rest of the international community will have to follow along. So why don't we get astrobotic and iSpace and um, intuitive machines to come up with sort of a plan. Hey, this is where I'm going to go, um, you know, bring in Space IL, you know, be as, as international as possible 
and say, you know, we do have a concept in the Outer Space Treaty called due regard. And let's figure out what due regard means. And let's sort of figure out, let's create MOUs and sort of principles based on this concept of due regard. Uh, so the, that going somewhere um, and being able to mine it. Now, I have a very, uh, very particular about the moon. I, I love our moon. I don't want to see it mined away to nothing. I don't, I would like to see a lot of it protected. Um, but, but I think we need to mine the moon in order to understand how to mine asteroids, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we cannot. So the moon, which has always been with humanity, is going to help us once again. Um, it has guided us across oceans. Now it's going to guide us across the universe. But um, when we get to asteroids, I think, you know, nobody can have a cultural claim over some rock in the middle of the asteroid belt that they've never seen before, right? right? Um, and there's a lot of them out there. So why wouldn't you just say, okay, yeah, first come, first serve. Now, of course, we have this concept of, well, the developing nations or the, the global south, you know, they're, 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 they would never be first at anything. Well, first of all, I think that's an awful way to think about it. And when I talk to people from the global south, it's not that it's not, oh, you know, save us something. It's take us with you. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are ways to uh, require if you will, or, or incentivize uh, commercial entities, governments to work with the global South to make sure that they are brought with us, with the, us, I say, I'm American, so that's why I do, but, Understood. Uh, with, with the Western countries um, and not leave anybody behind. And, and we've seen uh, a success with UN Spider, right? The remote sensing uh, imagery, sharing of remote sensing data. We know how to do this and we have precedence for it. We did it with um, with telecommunications when we first realized, oh, you know, it kind of makes sense for us all to be able to community, communicate together. We can do this with, with mining. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's definitely something where, look, we've been able to work together when we know we need to, and we can do this now. Do we even know what's in the core of the moon or, or like below? Like, I mean, as far as I know, we've never... We again, the co the collective we, not not me and you. I've never dug on the moon, um, but the, they've never been able to drill past like a foot and a half down into the moon. That and yeah, it's very hard. But no one's exactly sure what it is. I mean, I know there's theories because of this. It's like more resonant than the Earth is, so they think maybe it's like a lattice work or you know uh, so, something like that. But yeah, of course, there's the hollow moon theory, which is, of course, my favorite, that it's you know actually a, an alien spacecraft or something was artificially put there to, you know, uh, allow humans to uh, evolve, et cetera. But that, that's for my other show, not for this one. And, and we do have shows on that and we'll have shows on the future on that. Um, but, I mean, is that just a myth? Do we know what's, is it iron? Is it is it cobalt? Is it, or do we really not know what's in there? It's just something that's hard. Uh, but hopefully something that, that we can break and use for landing pads, or is there enough surface material, silica, or you know whatever it is that, that create you know uh, launch pads and and basic you know pods for shelter you know from radiation to to build habitations under. Well, we have no idea. I mean, think about it right now. Um, I space crash landed on the moon. We have no idea where it is on the moon. Right. We we actually have don't have confirmation that it crashed on the moon. We just know that it was on a trajectory to hit the moon when communications went out. Um, and, and when we see all these reports, of, we found water on the moon, we found cobalt on the moon. 
Sure, we found traces of stuff, but we don't know how much there really is. We, we're just conjecturing, which is why it's so important the next mission, Artemis uh, 3, will go to the South, or I think, no, sorry, Viper will go to the South Pole, right? right. To, to get that kind of sample more into the core to see exactly how much water we're talking about. Uh, but, you know, the the idea that this moon is, is the eighth continent and it's going to answer all of our uh, resource uh, problems, solve all the problems, is, is a complete myth. And again, you know, you will always have people like me who will say, look, the moon is something special culturally. Now, even if, I mean, if it's humanity versus the moon, yeah, different issue. But when we know we can use the moon responsibly to get farther out to places that we know we can mine to nothingness, um, that's what we should be doing. Yeah, and there's... Lots of ice in space, but that doesn't mean all ice melts into water as we understand water to be. Well, apparently, lots of gases can turn into ice, um, but that doesn't mean that when they melt that they're anywhere near H2O, um, So, which is something I know. But, the, but let's hope that there is, because that's a, a large part of, of the theory, is that there will be a water source on the moon to, to for drinking, living, sanitation, um, you know, I guess cooling and heating would be part of it, um, and probably to mix some of the other materials to sort of make a cement, and and I think also the the rocket fuel. I mean, isn't that comes from water as well? I mean, um, so there's a whole lot. We did a show in situ resource utilization, which I probably made a mistake in naming the show that, but I'd never heard that term before. So, of course, I had to use it as the name, but if anyone wants to hear more about that, they can listen in on that um it's uh it is daunting it's a huge huge topic i i don't understand exactly how we i mean okay i understand the concept of 3d printers but i've never having never seen one like how do you get a 3d printer up there and can you 3d print drills and bulldozers and backhoes and excavators and things that you need in mining. I mean, listen, Saudi Arabia, if there's one thing they have, it's a, it's a lot of drilling and heavy equipment that has to do with drilling and, and you know, transportation movement of resources, um, for sure. I mean, and, and so does the United States and so do lots of countries. Um, but if they're foreseen moving from a fossil fuel economy to something else, you know, it, it, you know, space may not be the worst, you know, hundred year investment for them. Um, but how in the, me- in the near term do we get like a giant drill, you know, up there, uh, you know, and excavators to put something into the 3D printers? And how do you get a 3D printer? I, I mean, aren't they enormous? In pieces, right? So, <laughs> and, and <laughs> you know, the, um, the one of the coolest videos I've seen um, is the relativity space 3D printer printing the rocket. Um, and you're right, it's huge. Um, and the, there's a concept um, actually of just leaving a 3D printer on orbit and bringing materials to it, right? So That's that so cool. you don't have to worry as much about um, getting it somewhere or planting it. I, I don't know the answers, um, but you know, the, the, the idea is of, of being able to use um, in-situ resources of course, is going to save us tremendously in the long run. I and mean, we're not going to bring bricks and mortar up to the moon with us. 
So I, I think that the, you know, we're looking at AI, we're looking at machine learning, we're looking at a machine building itself into what it needs to be. Um, and, and these are, these are steps that people, um, smart engineers and scientists are thinking about right now. Right. I keep forgetting what I brought you on the show for, and that is because you're a lawyer and a professor a lawyer, of law. Yeah, I know that. So, so look, so first I want to find out how did you get your organization to become a permanent observing member on the UN? Let's, let's, let's not give that short shrift and let's talk about the organization. And then you can sort of uh, segue into what is the role of lawyers in all of this and how can lawyers be part of the solution and in, in getting some of these, you know, big companies and governments who all have lawyers and lots of lawyers and fancy lawyers, lawyers that don't wear Chang beer shirts, uh, you know, probably, um, you know, so, yeah, I'll, I'll let you start with the, the starting of the organization, how you got it from, you know, just a dream to uh, a permanent observer status and the UN, and, and then you can sort of segue into the, the role of lawyers in this dance. So the, it's it, persistence and, and um, taking a risk and uh, just being, uh, being in the right, being, being present. Is, is really, I think, the answer to that. I um, I was able to attend the uh, Committee on the Peace of Outer Space meetings, and I sent in uh, Michelle Hamlin off the street. They didn't know I was. I sent in an abstract to the uh, high-level forum in Dubai, um, and it was accepted. Um, and that was, then that, that's, I met people and started to talk to people, submitted to Pippo, who was the head of the um, Office of Outer Space Affairs at the time, um, you know, people really liked the idea of protecting human heritage in space. Why? Because, first of all, there's, there's not one, I have not met one person, um, in all of my, in the, in this five years that I've been traveling on the, under the hat of Forum Mankind that has said, that's a stupid idea. Who cares about Apollo? Um, no, everybody, 600,000 people watched Neil Armstrong put his boot into the lunar surface. Um, and I just saw the movie First Man and I, I just loved that, the, the jumping on the, on the foot pad of the lamb, right? Because he had no idea. Was he going to sink in? Was he <laughs> like, but like, oh my God, like that moment. Um, but it's bigger than that. It's not just about history. It's about the future. Um, this is the first step to, to responsibility. You know, when we, when, when we, when Westerners, um, colonized um one of the first things they did was destroy a lot of cultural heritage we're going to do something different when we go to space we're not going to destroy that cultural heritage we're going to protect it and we're going to protect some of the natural heritage as well and so my message resonated we need to be responsible and the first way we can be responsible is by protecting our history a history that is universal because um sure it's an american uh flag on the on the moon um, and sure, 400,000 Americans worked on the Apollo mission, but Neil Armstrong doesn't get to the moon without Copernicus, doesn't get to the moon without, you know, somebody in Lytoli, Tanzania, deciding to stand up on two feet instead of four and freeing their hands, doesn't get to the moon without some person in the Congo starting to figure out math. You know, we don't get to the moon without our entire evolution of history. And so that that footprint is a, it's humanity's greatest achievement. Um, because it, it wraps up everything we've done in history um, into that one step, including the icky stuff. You know, the rockets are from Nazi Germany. 
you know, let's face it, we've got to recognize that um, when we look at our own history. Yeah. And so that's my my message resonated, and I'm I can be really annoying. And so I think I think in in, in part it, um, it might have just been get her get her to stop. You know, if we put her, if we give her a seat at the table, she won't be allowed to talk because observers are seen and not heard, right? So. Um, but it was, you know, the, actually the, the Committee on the Peace Reasons of Outer Space is very accessible. Um, and the, the United Nations is just something that surprises people. You know, there's a whole program um, where they're trying to bring civil society in to be involved in the United Nations. It's not, it's not hard to get involved, especially after COVID, because now everybody's much more comfortable on Zoom. And so you don't have to travel to Dubai to be involved in a UN function or a UN event. Um, so if you're out there and you've got some idea or you have an organization that has some international aspect or um, or that you think, even if you don't have an international aspect now, if you think you can be helpful on an international stage, go to the UN, go to the ECOSOC and, and become um, a, a certified ECOSOC. Uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, you get certified status from ECOSOC and then you can work through the UN and figure out where you can make the most difference. What's ECOSOC? Uh, I knew you were going to ask. It's uh, the uh, the United Nations. Um, I think it's Economic uh, Council ECOSOC. Um, but it is the part. It is the branch of the United Nations that brings works with civil society, tells civil society, you know, what's happening at the UN, encourage you to, to send abstracts and information, um, and get involved. So the co is probably cooperative or something like that, and the yeah. SOC is probably social. Economic something. Council on Social and Economic yeah. Cooperation, something like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, but there's a whole application process. Um, it's it's not easy, but um, it you know it needs to be a little bit rigorous. Yes. Well, m- my specialty is finding myself unpaid jobs, so uh, yeah. I, I have a feeling that that I'd probably be accepted just because of bad luck, but. Um, all right. So, what is the role of lawyers in this? So, the, I am often I wouldn't say booed or heckled. It doesn't go that far, but um, <laughs> I do get trolled on Twitter quite a bit. You know, keep lawyers out of it. Um, and I always tell people, if you don't like lawyers, it's because you had a really bad one at some point in your life, and I'm right. very sorry for you. You know, my job as a lawyer is to protect my client and promote my client and allow get my client. Give my client the opportunity to do what he or she wants legally, right? right. Um, and so if you say, hey, Michelle, I want to go mine the moon, I'm not going to say, no, you can't. I'm going to say, okay, let's figure this out. How are we going to do that within the current laws that exist? And then you look at the law and you see, well, the law is kind of gappy and not really there yet. So what do I do? I help fill the law, fill the gaps in the law in a way that will enhance the, you know, promote what my client wants to do. Now, of course, you know, I, I will be able to pick and choose. I don't want to have a client who wants to go and, you know, murder tardigrades on the moon or something. But, right. um, you know, this is this is what lawyers do. And so our job is to fill in the gaps um, and hopefully in a, in a responsible way so that governments won't get mad um, at commercial space. Um, so my job is to help commercial space be responsible and actually Right now, commercial space is pretty responsible. It's not a hard job. Is it, uh, and it's mostly through contract or memorandums of understanding, which I, you know, it's just sort of a different term for a contract of sort. 
So right now, I personally am not working with any commercial. Um, I'm not. I'm not of counsel to any commercial company. Um, what I'm doing is working through the regulations. So we're talking and, and um, advocating for certain things. So, for example, I would advocate to the um, to the FAA to Congress that uh, uh, we need to have more transparency in payload review. Um, you know, and, and that's helpful to commercial entities because what we don't want is um, something going to the moon and everybody getting all mad and then going up, you know, going sort of taking it to the extreme and not letting anything go to the moon without all sorts of permissions. Um, and so that, you know, we at, at the University of Mississippi, we're sort of looking at the landscape and trying to advocate for what we think is going to be best to support commercial industry but also to keep it responsible in a responsible manner. So the FAA would be one. Is, is that the, I mean, what about Space Force or NOAA or, I mean, satellites is a lot of what's going on there. And I, my understanding is they have to do something with the FCC. I'm sorry, the FCC. Um, is, is, do you, is it ever sort of frustrating to have to deal with more than one agency or is, is sometimes something you do with the FAA you know, counter, you know, seen as counterproductive with the FCC, or I, I don't, I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense, but uh, with so many agencies and different priorities, um, you know, how, you know, how do you uh, formulate a game plan? And that is one of the most difficult things about the U.S. regulatory process right now. Um, and and right now, there, the uh, the office, uh, the White House office, uh, National Space Council. Um, had said, oh, we're going to figure out where the new, we haven't figured out how to license new space activities, right? How are we going to license people who are going to go to the moon? How are we going to license people who want to do in-space manufacturing? How are we going to license commercial spaceports? Um, so we can't answer the how until we answer the who. Right. And right now there's a fight between, oh, should it be at the Department of Transportation? Because, you know, spacecraft are really transportation vehicles. Or should it be Department of Commerce? Because... You know, we're building in a space economy. The administration hasn't been able to answer that question yet. Um, they had promised that they would answer by the early June, uh, early March, um, and it's been. I think there's so much infighting about which agency should get these these responsibilities. Um, so the let's let's talk about. You're right. It's um, the Department of Commerce right now through the uh, National Oceanic um, Administration NOAA Atmosphere. Um, Thank you, Atmospheric Agency um, Administration uh, licenses remote sensing satellites. Um, the FAA licenses spaceports and all launches and reentries. The FCC licenses radio frequency. Um, and so the FCC basically has its hand in everything because you need to be able to communicate with your spacecraft. And you can only do that when you get that license from the FCC. So what the FCC has done um, is it, it's the FCC is one of those agencies which is like, I'm just going to sort of ooze out and nobody's going to notice until it's too late that I have my hand in everything. Right. Um, and so they've actually taken the lead on debris, orbital debris remediation and mitigation. Um, they did this, they took the brilliant step of saying, okay, the international rule is that you have to deorbit your spacecraft 25 years after end of life. I think it's 25 years. Um, the FCC said, no, if, if you are going to be licensed by us, it has to be within five years. Um, huge difference. Mm -hmm. And actually, when the FCC made that rule, uh, Republicans in the House were very angry, not because they thought the rule was wrong, 
but because they didn't think the FCC should be the one to to state it. So we're really, within the United States, we're at this impasse of where should all this go? And that's one of the things that the University of Mississippi we're looking at, um, and we're advocating for uh, much of the new space activities to go to the Department of Commerce, because uh, you know when, once you get to space, that space station is no longer, and technically it's moving, but it's mm-hmm. no longer a vehicle, it's a place of, of, to, to stay. Um, and, you know, once we have space hotels, oh my goodness, are uh-huh. we going to get Blader Department and OSHA? And no, we, we need to really, um, I, I, I think we need a Department of Space. That, that's that's uh- just me. Oh yeah, we we we've been covering it on the show. Meaning, the we is me and whoever my guest is. But I had I had someone who managed Dulles Airport. We talked about the international terminals. I had an air traffic controller who's been both civilian and military. I had someone talk about the Jones Act and uh, I, I forgot the other one, but it was it has to do with you know uh, seamen, you know, and, and laws of the sea and who is a seaman and uh, portage and things like that. I had an immigration attorney on about sort of diplomatic uh, and NGO status. I'm trying to get someone in, in international law enforcement, though that's proving to be a little bit difficult. I mean, e- even to find the proper agency who would even like know what to jump in to talk about. But it seems to me, and, and, and this is, you know, from the mouth of the babes a little bit, but, you know, after 9-11, everyone said, well, the, the, all these agencies are sort of at odds. I didn't share. And they created the director of national intelligence. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's for the better or not, but let's let's assume it has been. Um you know, is it impossible to create a director of space policy, DSP, that sort of sits above all of these agencies and they all have, you know, their, you know, they all, they all file a report with that. And in the case of a, you know, a, 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 an argument or a d- dispute, they make a decision or they go to the, the president or, or a, you know, the, the president and a senatorial and congressional oversight committee and make a decision. Um I mean, I guess it's possible. Is that is that something that anybody's working to do, or is it just like, nah, the FCC is doing okay for us right now? We're very much in the latter camp. I think now, you know, the space isn't is has not even been elevated into the critical infrastructure of the country yet. You know, we don't consider it part of our critical infrastructure. Um, we really need to start, and, and this is again something we're advocating both through Forum Mankind and Mississippi. Um, building awareness of how much we rely on space uh, on an everyday basis. And I'm not talking about a day without satellites, you know, blah, blah, blah. People just need to be, it needs to be ingrained um, that not only is is space an integral part of our lives, um, it, there's a race going on right now. And, and there are things to think about with respect to orbits and um, lunar mining and asteroid mining. And so I think... I like this idea of a, you know, sort of a director of policy, but I, I'd like better the idea of, of having just one, a one-stop shop mm-hmm. um, for your licensing, for your disputes, um, whatever. You, there is a Department of Space, and then within that space, all directed by one person, you're looking at all of the different things. And you talked about before about um, uh, enforcement and you know having a court just for space law. Absolutely, we need to start. You know the the um, airline industry, the international airline industry, um, has a has the Warsaw and Montreal conventions, right? This is a uh, treaty which governs how we're going to deal with accidents um, in the international flights. And we've created a body of law, even though we're not in one jurisdiction, everyone's interpreting the same treaty. 
we need something like that. So we start all acting the same, the same expectations um, in space. Yeah, and space is very big and it goes in all directions. So, you know, it, 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 every, every person on Earth could have uh, a separate asteroid in, in either asteroid belt and there'd still be lots and lots and lots of more asteroids uh, left, left over. Um, so, and, and we don't even know what's in the Oort cloud. So, uh, <laughs> or, or even exactly what it is. I mean, the, the, these are all very disappointing discoveries to me. You know, I, I go to a presentation, they tell me about this thing called the Oort cloud. What is it? Not sure. How, how big is it? Don't know. Uh, it, it could be three light years long. What? What? <laughs> where, where does it, where is our atmosphere in? No one really agrees. Where, where does the magnetosphere agree? Eh, nobody's really sure. So that someone says there's a Canaan line. Someone's like, what's a Canaan line? I, I, I mean, I, I still haven't come to grips with the concept of the laws of earth apply beyond earth i mean uh, somebody at some point i mean there is federal i mean you might know this there, there was a federal case some year maybe it's a legal urban myth but at some point i think i even re- learned it in law school that at some point somebody sued satan and some federal judge probably said i don't want to deal with this in my court and said we this court has no jurisdiction over over uh, you know, deities that are, uh, you know, that, that we're underneath that are, you know, that we only, we only have humans and below. We, we, whatever, whatever the phraseology and they decline jurisdiction based on that. Well, that's not exactly apples to apples, but I mean, it's sort of precedent. You don't have jurisdiction over beyond earth now, now do you? And I don't know that some court isn't going to, you know, rule on. So it seems to me that there has to be at least some sort of legal agreement internally that the, the, the laws of man must apply. Um, and that we better get the laws of man right or righter than we have in, in the past to try to get, you know, everyone to sign on because it, it is going to take resources from everywhere and everyone's cooperation. I mean, even if you have a ship that falls, you know, off the coast of, well, say Jeff Zikistan, you want, you need Jeff Zikistan to be like, you know, we're going to send out our coast guard to, to rescue your, you know, your astronauts are at that point, you know, you know, you call, you call everyone astronaut, but some of them are construction workers and, you know, nurses and doctors and lawyers and me, a space magistrate. Um, yeah, I'm putting my hat, I'm putting my, my hat in, in, in that ring. I want to be the first space magistrate. Call me Green Lantern One, something like that. <laughs> but I mean, but you're right though. International law does apply in space, and you know, think so. Think about the ramifications of that, and think about the fact that law is about regulating people, and that law created states, not vice versa. Yeah. Um, and so, I really think what we're going to see is. Um, as we move out into space, again, this recognition of, okay, the Treaty of Westphalia did a great job for a while, but now now we're done. We don't need sovereign states anymore. Um, and we, we're going to start back to Rousseau, looking at human rather than state relationships. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't be using this, the we don't need sovereign states line anymore because that, that, that is a triggering event for... Uh, you know, probably a good half of the the people out there. So I I would keep that out of any conversation. Because you'll be spending a lot of time on yeah buts. And as I tell clients every day, if you can avoid a yeah but early on with a few words, let let's avoid that yeah but. Because every time you have every time you have to do a yeah but, you're starting to you know backpedal and lose your argument, or at least waste time. So that 
that's my little two cents of input into into the positivity of this discussion uh, because uh, I'm not sure what else I can do except continue this journey and, and see where it's going. Um, and who knows? I mean, through through this podcast, I found myself on the Space Court Foundation and on their board. So that's fun. Who knows? Maybe the UN is next. We'll see. Absolutely. Yes. Maybe, maybe one day I'll make my parents proud. You never know. All right. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't or anything that you want to tell me that I didn't give you a question with an opportunity to um, insert something of particular importance? But the only thing that uh, you, we touched on really sort of skated over was Space Force. And, oh, uh, and I just uh, I just wanted to you know, put in my two cents sure. um, about Space Force. I think it's, it's really valuable. I think our, our next real issue is going to be um, those dual use. Every satellite is a dual use satellite, right? Yeah. Um, and so looking at events in the Ukraine, at, at what, what, is, what are our obligations to commercial satellites as in the U.S. government obligations to protect commercial satellites? Um, and, and what are they? Will, will they? Can they be characterized as um, legitimate targets of war? I think these are these are the kinds of questions that we're going to have to deal with right away. Um, and, and it's actually one of the first uh, issues that that my institute on space law and ethics is going to take up. So yeah, that, that that's why I think we need space law and magistrates, but also you know. I said space marshals, space police, whatever you need. You need some the guardians of the galaxy, you know. But you're you're gonna need, you you may need those things first out there and functional years and years before there's before they're doing anything. I mean, literally they'll be getting space donuts, you know, for 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 maybe eight or nine years or eighteen years. But you know, with without them, then it, it becomes the wild west. But you know, in in three dimensions. I think that's right, and, and I think it's it's really important um, to have a space force and to have multiple space forces so that we do have some sort of. I mean, maybe maybe we'll have blue helmets in space. You know, who knows? Oh yeah, I could use a blue helmet. All right, it's not about me. Not everything's about me, <laughs> and and cool uniforms and and things like that. But I wouldn't mind if it was. Okay. Anyway, uh, thank you so much uh, for granting us your time, your wisdom, playing around a little bit with me on this. And and I didn't even get into my Bond villain scenarios because uh, um, there's. I think I think if every, anybody listens to the show carefully, it was all it was all embedded in there somewhere. It was all insinuated in there. What what might or might not happen with a Bond villain. Uh, so I'll leave that one alone for for the moment. Um, I was doing another show. I couldn't think of the, of the movie. It was Moonraker, where oh, you no. you literally had a Bond villain in in space. Uh, anyway, so again, space marshals. I throw my hat in the ring on that one. I just need some. I uh, just need a a few good um, you know commandos, and we'll take care of it. Um, how can they? support the organization so tax exempt so i imagine it, it takes donations and anything else that that people can do to follow or support you and your missions if you follow us on social media that's always helpful the more we can amplify our voices maybe retweeting us uh, uh forwarding and reposting our links so we're for all um at for all kind on twitter and uh for all kind on linkedin um and again it's really just about um, the more and more people who hear about us, who hear about space, the more and more we can assure that, that we, we see the behaviors we want to see in space. All right. Well, I just gave you a follow on one account. I have two other accounts, so you'll get two more before the day is out. So you'll have awesome. so three. So everyone out there, you heard her. Follow For All Moon Kind at, on Twitter. 
and if you want to give to the fund, it's also called For All Moonkind Incorporated. Is it out of Mississippi? It's out of Connecticut right now, but it, uh, okay. it's moving. Yeah, so. That's fine. And Brett Favre and the DiBiases are not involved, correct? <laughs> we're, yeah, we're good. <laughs> okay, excellent. Yeah. All right. Very good. Don't don't sue me, Brett. Either Brett. I was say, none, we don't we don't pay any anybody. We're entirely volunteers, right. so we have no employees, no consultants, uh, no yeah. Um, right. So uh, every penny that we get goes straight into protecting the blueprints. Excellent, excellent. And I I just threw out the name Brett. It's just a complete yeah. coincidence. Um, yeah. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah, I should have just stuck with Jeff Jeff Zikistan. All right, I, I forgot my own rule, my own law. Maybe I'm not that space magistrate material after all. All right. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us in Garden Views. Perhaps we'll chat again. Uh, I look forward to following the tweets on Twitter and seeing your stuff. And thanks to the audience for tuning in. And uh, you'll hear from us again next time. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.